0: We are considering the process of reconciliation to God. We saw that there were two climaxes that have to be taken, and uh, these are represented as sudden actions. There has to be a period of time, therefore, in preparing us to take these sudden actions. We don't take these major actions all at once. We said that saving faith is the greatest event we're ever going to make in our lives. Number one decision, because this involves total personality. Every other decision of life is not quite this important or involved in our whole lives. But since Jesus has given his all to own us, salvation is a willingness to be owned. And he can't own us we're willing to have him own us. And so here are the two great climaxes that introduce us in this precious relation with God. Uh, we might say that repentance is the first half of saving faith. And we may say that saving faith is the last half of repentance. <coughs> repentance has the idea of a turning from our former way of life. It is a putting off of the old man or the old way of living. This is the negative part. But we can't turn to a vacuum. And so as we decide that our former way of living is completely wrong and that God is showing us what is the true way of living, we turn away from our foreign way of living and then we turn to the new way of living. And we put off the old man, represented as past tense, We put on the new man. These are climaxes. And so before these great climaxes occur, as we've indicated, there obviously has to be some kind of a period of time. We can't say how long this is. And it's so merciful of God not to demand any particular length. He could require us to spend a whole month thinking about our sins, couldn't he? He could send us away with a whole notebook, to fill with everything we can think of that we've ever done wrong. Then he could say, you come back to me after a month and then show me what you have evaluated and then I will consider whether I'm going to be merciful or not. This is not the heart of God, is it? I'm sure he's dealt with you like he's dealt with me. When there's evidence of a sincerity of heart, God can't wait any longer to bring us into his precious heart to once more restore the fellowship that he created man to enjoy. So we have said in the beginning of both of these sections, this repentance and saving faith, a condition is something agreed upon as a requirement to fulfilling some blessings that God wants to give it. It's not that for the sake of which we say something is done, but rather that without which that something cannot be done. So there's no merit in repentance It is to sit down and think things over. And I have no idea why uh, there have come theological systems which supposedly have no place for repentance. How do you ever consider reconciliation to God without sitting down and thinking things over? It would seem so obvious, wouldn't it? And so plain. Now we were considering uh, why repentance is necessary. And we had come now to a very, very important issue, which I asked that you would begin to consider in a previous lecture because of its immense importance. We have, for example, on your page 2 and your item 5 in parenthesis, under 2, we have the concept of a loving God wanting to reconcile us to Himself. And the gospel is a remedy for what we've done to ourselves. How can God apply the remedy if we're not willing to turn from the problem? We might conceive of a chemical here into which we're inducing into this chemical container here a pollutant, something that pollutes the chemical, whatever it is. Then we want to purify this, so we're introducing another chemical to purify what we're putting in. Now, there's no possibility of the purification chemical catching up with the pollutant as long as we keep on adding the pollutant. And so the gospel aims to meet us where we have brought ourselves and try to answer the problems, reconcile us to God, transform us in a remarkable way so we may be happy children with God, looking up with confidence and worship and restfulness in our wonderful Savior he wants to be our shepherd, he said. And he, as a shepherd, he said, he went before. Now we come to a grappling issue, as we've indicated. And you won't find much agreement with this in our present evangelical sphere of thinking. However, it was different in times past. That's very amazing to research and to see the prominence of some of the things we're talking about. So at the bottom of your page uh, two, then, we have this proposition... We say here unless God can find a way to forgive sin while it is going on or forgive what has not occurred as yet and therefore has no present guilt in the divine government. Man must repent and stop the flow of sin in order to be brought to a point where he is not under condemnation. Now as I said, this is radically denied in in common present-day evangelical thinking. And just a few months ago, in one of our popular evangelical publications, here's a great big major article, All Christian Sin. And the development of the article is, all Christians are continually sinning. To begin with, I think we are cautioned in the Scripture never to make any kind of a boast that we live a certain period of time without sin. Because if I get into an ugly state of mind and cultivate my selfishness, then obviously if this doesn't have any external manifestation, in God's sight is wrong. And I think it's a very dangerous thing for us to profess that we live certain periods of time without sin. This is not the question being discussed now. The question is, is there a a continuation of sin always going on? What is our life supposed to be like? A continuation of more or less sin? Or does the Scripture represent us as Christians as habitually living without sin and admonishing us to be on our guard, lest we get into some wrong states of mind, which, of course, result in wrong actions. The latter is the only way I'm able to read the New Testament. We have all the many, many descriptions, as you remember, where sin is simply not continuous in the Christian. Such were some of you. We have many times. Be not deceived, Paul writes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He comes into these plain, bold statements. Titus 3, 3. Such were some of you. And so the, the representation of the New Testament is that sin is simply not continuous in the Christian. And so now we're trying to see which one of these ideas is right. And let's have no arguments with people over this. Let's formulate our own conclusion and try to live with our precious Savior and demonstrate what God wants us to do as His precious lights in this dark world. When I work through the New Testament, I find no evidence that God forgives sin while it is going on. The only thing I see, if we forsake our sin and confess it, God forgives us. I find no place in the New Testament where God forgives sin that is going to be ten years from now. This, of course, goes to the concept of the satisfaction theory of the atonement. And if this theory would be right, our sin was paid for before we were born, because there's no payment now going on. And this is where multitudes of professing evangelical Christians are resting in a guilty conscience with the assumption that their sins are paid for past, present, and future. And when you have a little bit, plus or minus, doesn't matter very much. If the thing we're now talking about could be suddenly changed in the the leaders of different Christian enterprises, there would be in one month a great revival in America there would be altars who were covered with individuals forsaking their sin and opening their hearts. So here's a slumbering going on over this whole condition. You remember we had our mixed motive chart here. And this is the opinion that we're we're investigating. I mentioned that reading dozens of books on devotional, devotional life years ago, The ultimate they seem to come to is some kind of a residue of selfishness here that always exists. In other words, we're talking about this. Does anyone ever emerge above the line or not? We will have a chart uh, tomorrow uh, talking about the simplicity of this matter uh, where we do emerge above the line. And so here is the issue. And of course they bring to our attention... Uh, 1 John one eight, you can hear this quoted again and again. And it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But what is the meaning of this passage? And we cite in your notes, you notice, a number of passages from 1 John. And I declare, as you read through these passages in 1 John, it simply cannot be the idea conveyed that nobody ever stops sinning. Because the whole epistle is talking about stopping sinning, isn't it? And so we get bound in our minds when we do research. Try to read the Word of God see what it says. We, we have to investigate and, and maybe modify some very important opinions we have had. Uh, listen to some of these literal translations very quickly. We'll have them here for your notation if you wish. Uh, We turn to 1 John 1, 7, do we not? Here we have the cleansing of the heart from all sin. Obviously, if there is a cleansing from all sin, it must mean that we stop sinning. Do we all understand the problem? Is sin intermittent in our lives or is it continuous? And God's design is that it should be rarely intermittent. It should be the very great exception and not the rule. There's no conceivable way I can study the New Testament and see that sin is the rule. And, and Christian growth means that we're going to learn to avoid these exceptions. We're going to learn to abide in Christ so we have victory. When we get some wrong thought process coming in our minds, we're going to see them right away and say, Now that's wrong. I spent one minute thinking about this, Lord, and that's wrong. So in my concept, we ought to be humble before God and give God every benefit of every doubt. And if we get into a selfish state of thought life, which is so easy with all the approaches we have, your television advertisement, all the advertisements, newspapers, all the influence of the world tends to pollute our minds, does it not, with selfishness. Because here the people are living in the flutter of selfishness. And we don't want to have any part of this as Christians. So we're in a situation of temptation on every hand, are we not, to begin to have some wrong thoughts And if we don't direct our minds and walk in the Spirit, we're going to have these wrong thoughts. And we need to be very sensitive. And the the supreme acknowledge, the supreme growth in Christian grace is to learn these situations before they get a hold of us. In other words, to learn a process of thought after one minute of thought rather than over two hours of wrong thinking. So this must be this. Do we all understand what we're conversing about now? We are not saying that that we don't have some lapses of mind. And if you're like me, we need to come to sweet Jesus every day and to do what Jesus said we should do, take up our cross and join ourselves to him. We should come to our dear master and say, Now, dear master, I want to start this day right. I want to start this day positively. I want to start this day constructively. And will you just lead me now as my shepherd to help me to start this day? And will you go with me through this day that to shield me from different things that may come my way. Because I just don't simply want any kind of a disturbance of mind that's going to affect your heart, dear Jesus. Because you're such a loving Savior and you've done all this for me, and I just want to show you my appreciation for your love. This, to my concept, is a Christian attitude. But it can't mean that we never stop sinning, that's for sure. Otherwise, how are you going to read this epistle? So you have in verse 9 of chapter 1, do you not? If we are confessing our sins, here we have a present tense. Every time we are aware of some wrong thoughts or actions, uh, we are to confess these things. And if we are confessing our sins, we read, Faithful He is and righteous, in order he might for, may forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from all iniquity or all unrighteousness. Of course, if he cleanses us, this must be a state of deliverance, must it not? Now look at the very reason for this epistle being written. Can you imagine this? We have in the second chapter the reason for the writing of 1 John, don't we? And so John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, if anyone should sin. This is not an indicative mode, of course. It's a subjunctive mode. It's not when anyone sins, but if anyone should sin. We have an advocate with the Father. Isn't this interesting? God doesn't expect us to have wrong thoughts. He doesn't expect us to have wrong actions. And to live a Christian life is not to live on a ragged edge of some kind. It's not to live in a glass house of some kind. It's a reasonable life. It's a balanced life. God's a wonderful God, isn't He? He has a part for all of our creative experiences if they're in the right place, and the right proportions. This is the beautiful concept we see of the Christian life. This is what we call the reasonable requirements of God. Many would imagine that the requirements of God are so rigid that there's no place for humanity in them. And so they would say we sin in thought, word, and deed continuously. Now the first epistle of John is written, so we shall not sin, the reason for its writing. And we, as we said, we have a subjunctive mode, if anyone should sin, not when anyone does sin. We, we go to verse 17, He who is doing the will of God is abiding forever. We go to verse 29, Everyone who is doing righteousness and so forth is of God, is born of Him. Uh, We go to chapter 3, and here we have some very, very penetrating verses to be sure. We come to verse 4, where we had the clearest definition we thought of sin, a state of lawlessness, a refusal to conform to what is true. Then look at verse 6, and here we have the simplicity of this statement. Everyone... Who in him is abiding is not sinning. That is, when we have a reasonable approach, when we have before our minds a proper perspective, when we are in reverential attitude toward God, we're in reverential attitude toward each other, and as far as we know, we are trying to live a balanced, sensible life. The Titus 2 11 to 14 has a beautiful translation. Let's live sensibly. This is all God wants. We live sensibly. And when we're living a balanced life, uh, as God gives us, our heart does not condemn us. And this is what uh, John is writing about. He who is abiding in Christ is not sinning. So just as clear a statement as is possible to write, isn't it? And look at verse 7. He who is doing righteousness is righteous. Verse 8. He who is doing sin out of from the devil is. We're just trying to give these elementary verbal ideas here and the tenses. Verse 9, everyone who has come to be begotten out of from God, sin is not doing, and he's not able to be sinning. We render this perfect tense with the idea of a duration. Come to be. This is the idea of this tense. It has a duration of some kind. It has a climax of some kind. It has the continuation. So come to be begotten. trying to convey the duration idea of this tense and trying to convey the climactic idea of this tense. And what's the result of this? Sin is not doing. Verse 9, everyone who has come to be begotten out of from God. Here's our little preposition again. Come to be begotten out of from God. Since God is love, of course. What happens? Sin is not doing. And he's not able to be sinning. That is, we can't go on living like we did before because the Holy Spirit is in us and he's working against us as we go uh, in a wrong manner of thinking and so on. And so you can't go, and anyone who can go back and live the way they did before has never met the Lord, of course. If we're so foolish as to go back and live in our former pursuits, we have to work at it. We have to resist the Holy Spirit. He goes with us, of course. This is not an in and out salvation we have with God, is it? And if we get in the wrong state of mind, wrong state of action, Jesus is there with us, and the Holy Spirit is with us. My little grandson one time had a moving experience with God. I can't take time to tell it all. But he said, he's about five years old, he says, Jesus frowned at me last night. And so here is a manifestation of how the Holy Spirit moves us, isn't it? And can you think of anything more damaging than the frown of Jesus? And when Jesus looks upon us in our inner countenance and corrects us, how deeply it wounds us. In other words, Jesus is not quick in his action. God, God's long suffering, and the very long suffering of God hurts us, doesn't it? And so, this is the beautiful concept we have. And if we have these lovely experiences with the Spirit of God, we can't go back and live what we did before. We have the Spirit in us, he's grieved. There's a solemnness here. We have Jesus interceding for us. We don't deserve this intercession. And so, here we have God with a sorrow coming upon us. And our shepherd is sorrowful when we don't have spring in our steps to follow him but lag behind. And so we see the beautiful picture of relationship, verse 10. Everyone who is not doing righteousness is not out of from God. Just as clear as could be. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 5. Verse 4, I should say. I should say 5-4. Whatsoever has come to be begotten out of from God is conquering the world. Everyone who has come to be begotten out of from God is not sinning. These are present tenses, is not practicing sin. And so I don't know what could be clearer than these statements in this epistle. We go to 3 John verse 11. He who is doing good out of from God is. Or he who is doing evil has not come to be seeing God. We try to represent these particular tenses in this manner. And so we see that the scripture indicates That forgiveness is a reality. God doesn't say anything mysterious about it. Where do you read about forgiveness of present sin? Where do you read about present forgiveness of future sin? You don't read about it that I can ever find? And when God talks about uh, forgiveness, like Jesus said, thy sins be forgiven, go and sin no more. This is God's idea, isn't it? I've been so merciful to you. Now don't take advantage of me since I've been so good to you. But continue in a sensitivity toward me. And so we need to rethink our simplicity, do we not? And see how beautiful and how lovely God wants to help us and meet with us. And He can't remedy our situation. He can't give us the pure, beautiful purity of mind, beautiful perspective of the values of life, the beautiful relaxation that comes from our happiness with God and the lovely ties we have with each other when we are together in our concentration upon God and His lovely position. These are the beautiful things God wants to give us, is it not? And He can't do this unless we're willing to rethink our position and see what is real. Remember Jesus said that nothing in the externals is the answer to His coming. As a Savior, there must be a change in the heart, the center, of the personality whereby we recognize and allow Him to come in and live with us. And all He wants to do, of course, is to bless us and give us relaxation so we would be happy little children in His place. And it's so good to be little when we see the greatness of God, isn't it? How unthinkably beautiful this is. Well, sin and happiness are inconsistent, aren't they? There can't be any peace, of course, in a selfish attitude. And so we must emerge out of the old self, we say, and put on the new self. If we are to have this beautiful uh, transformation and happiness that God wants us to have. Now we must just say a few words about other important parts of this chapter. We have in your item three, has repentance always been required? And is it now required as the first condition of salvation? And we say there's been no change in the conditions of salvation all the way back to Adam and Eve and as long as we're in this world. I understand. I've been taught the dispensational systems and so on. And there's supposed to be some radical changes in the requirements of salvation in this age. But where do I find this reinforced in the Scripture? I can't when I went to see just what it would have to say. So there always has been the requirement to rethink our position and to see a turn to God in truth. There always has been the commitment of faith. So there's no changes whatsoever in the conditions of salvation. Tomorrow we're going to have a blessed time to be sure as we begin to try to evaluate all the wonderful things God wants to do for us in this age. There's a great enlargement of blessing that God wants to give us in this age, but there never has been any change in the conditions of blessing. There can't be. Certainly there's going to be reconciliation. it has to be a meeting of the minds, doesn't it? And as we've said, either God's got to come to our level, we don't want that for sure, or we have to come to God's level of intelligence. And we see that intelligence and truth is the only possible scheme of any kind of happiness. So God can't have any other procedure, can He? And look at the scriptures we have in this area. And these are very selective. As you go through the many, many scriptures in the Bible to this effect, it's astonishing how much the Bible has to say about this matter, isn't it? Now uh, we can't uh, read hardly any of them in the time we have. Uh, We need to just evaluate uh, some of the main things. You have the great Old Testament passage on this matter, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, isn't it? Here we have this sacred prophet getting his great enlightenment from God and pouring out these intimate things that have endured so long. He says, Seek ye the Lord when he may be found, Call upon him when he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So God wants to abundantly pardon, but he can't do this as long as we're running away from him. And so we need to stop on our tracks and listen to God's approach to us and see what is God has tried to convey to us. And it is we who must forsake our wrong way of life before God can begin to bless us, for sure. We have, uh, we talked about Ezekiel 18:30 30 to 32. Make yourself a new heart, for why would you die? And of course, the new heart is a new choice, a new, a new directive of our lives as to where the supremacy is going to be. And so, this is an absolute necessity, is it not? If there's going to be this lovely, Presence of God in our hearts and lives. We just look at a few New Testament passages in in review. We have dear Jesus starting out his ministry as we've read. We have Mark chapter 1, uh, 14 and 15. And Jesus begins his ministry preaching the gospel of God. He says the time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Have a change of mind. Make your commitment to me. He was saying. In the 13th of Luke, uh, Jesus is referring to a tragedy that happened there. Apparently many died of some kind of tragedy. And then he said these words in verses 3 and 5. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, he repeats it in verse 5. Then the commission of Jesus was, of course, Acts 24, 47 there. Talking about the atonement in verse 46. And then repentance for or unto remission of sins or forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So here's what the Savior said about it. We've talked to about Paul's commission. He commanded all men everywhere to repent. His words from God were those. He talks about in Acts 20, 21 repentance toward God, faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He summarizes his commission in the 26th of Acts, and this sounds exactly like John the Baptist, does it not? Because we have scholars seeing that John the Baptist preached repentance, but Paul didn't. Well, how do you put that together? Here is Paul's commission in verse 18. He said, God sent me to open their eyes to sit down with people to try to reason with them. And this is what the record says he did that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins, after they turn, of course, and, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith that is in me. We should all remember, always remember the freedom of Paul's will as expressed in verse 19. In spite of this great manifestation, he said he could have disobeyed this great manifestation. Then he says in verse 20, he kept on declaring... To those at Damascus first, also at Jerusalem, then throughout the regions of Judea, and even unto the Gentiles, the same message that he was, what were they supposed to do? That they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Sounds exactly like John the Baptist, doesn't it? So there can't be any change in this, and, and here we have a present tense, uh, to be repenting. It's not one thing we do, it's a change of attitude. It's such a change of attitude. We intend to stay this way. It's not any Sunday night procedure of pushing people over a climax of some kind. It must be such and something that's so comprehensive in our thinking. We intend to stay this way, do we not? And so we have the beautiful prescriptions there. Now, we can't say much about these other sections. We have spent a great amount of time trying to assemble the dear scriptures here. Uh, we, we mentioned that man must have a reverential attitude toward God, mustn't he? And certainly God can't have anything to do with anything else than this. Uh, then we must say that man must turn from a state of disobedience to a state of obedience, must he not? And we've read Romans six sixteen to 18. Don't you know, Paul says, uh, according to our choice of obedience, this determines our salvation, our relation to God. Uh, we saw that Jesus summarized uh, our requirements here uh, in this renunciation of selfishness, didn't he? Uh, Jesus said, if we're not willing to forgive others, God can't conceivably forgive us. And he made that very clear. And God is no respecter of persons, we say. Therefore, it is our actions that determine what God is going to be able to do. And then we have a group of scriptures indicating that men must seek God in salvation. This is almost totally denied in many evangelical uh, proclamations. And look at all the scriptures we have, and I've got a lot more written in my margin here where there has to be a response to God. In other words, God is seeking us and we have to be willing to turn around and respond to His seeking and to seek God as a result of His seeking us. And except for this attitude, there can't be any forgiveness. And so we have, we've read Isaiah 55, 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. And we have the publican smiting his breast, beseeching God to be merciful to him, the sinner. We have 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we get down before God and confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to give us this wonderful forgiveness He wants to give us. What is not repentance, we say. It's not some kind of a remorse. We always had this. It's not a change of subordinate choices, and we tremble as we say that. We have all kinds of folks who now decide to go to heaven and they're going to leave just as little as they have to, they think, to get there. This is a change of subordinate choices without a change of heart, to be sure. It's not a partial change of any kind. Not a change in percentages from our chart we had before us. Not a professed reversal, we say, under emotional pressure. Oh my, this will do no good to have all this emotional pressure, will it? It's far deeper than this. There has to be a thought process, an acceptance of what is true. And God sends us forth lovingly to try to get people to listen to us in the name of Jesus and to really plead with them. It's not to merit salvation by trying to improve ourselves. This is the first thing we thought to do. We have a statement of the words, a summary of this study of the different words used. We talked about the first uh, Hebrew word here, to repent, and we saw that that had to do with God mostly. A few times it's used concerning man. The common Old Testament word for repentance is to turn, to turn about, a return, a complete turn. There's no idea of a partial turn here. It's a complete turning about. And sometimes we have the word used several times in a single declaration here. We come to the New Testament, and as we've said already, the main idea of the word repentance is to think. And do we have a prefix to change? So to repent is to have a change of thinking. Strictly speaking, there's no emotion involved. It's a change of thinking. It's settling down and seeing what is true and what isn't true. And, of course, as we said, if we discover that we've lived for 10 years, 25 years, in a meocentric life, and we see the whole thing to be wrong, oh, my, how can you imagine that it wouldn't be an outgush of our emotional nature before God? asking Him to have mercy upon us because we have lived in such a distorted, selfish way in all our tensions. And certainly, although there's no emotion in the word, yet as we have this great change, there's bound to be an unthinkable emotion. And we have the noun also coming from the word mind with a prefix here, a change of mind. Then we have another word that's quite often used, to turn about, to turn back, turn around turn toward, and so on. And we have a preposition here giving the idea of a complete turn. You notice the simplicity as we come to see the precious Word of God. He's trying to show us simple things, is it not? And now we need to say just a word about the last page you have. We've already read these definitions. Let's look at that simple passage in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. And here we see uh, Paul coming to this uh, wicked city, and in a few weeks, here a great turning came to God. And so, you, you notice in that paragraph under your item six, we give you a literal translation of this passage. And here we say that repentance is to turn about, it's an instant turn when it comes. And when we turn about, we have a different direction. So here we have repentance is to turn about instantly, toward or facing. This little preposition, uh, toward, has the idea of facing. And we were facing our own indulgences then. And here was God, and here was our our selfless attachment. And we're facing away from God. We're not seeking God. We're facing our attachments, our own cultivation. And then Paul says, what did you do? You turned about. And when you turned about then, what would you do? Now you were facing God. And when you're facing God, then what did you do with your attachments? You turned away from your attachment. And, and so this little preposition, one means facing, one means separation. And so obviously here is a simple a climax that comes about in our lives, is it not? And then we have 1 Peter 2.25, you were a sheep going astray. By the way, we should finish this beautiful sentence, to be continually yielding obedience. Here's the, the concept of a slave, a love slave to Jesus and to to keep on serving our sweet Savior, looking for His coming. What a wonderful thing we have in the future with our precious Savior. Is man able to repent as we've remarked before? The fact that God commands us to repent tells us and solves this problem that man is able to repent. Now we've said a good deal about saving faith now, and now we need to go to that chapter and try to evaluate in summary the concept of saving faith, and particularly develop the mechanics, shall we say, as to when this wonderful manifestation of saving faith takes place. So here we say is the second condition of salvation. We talk about areas of truth that must be considered in saving faith. And again we say that we're going to make a total commitment upon the Bible and it's not possible for anybody to do this if we doubt the Bible. So it is our part as Christians to try to reason out with people the reasonableness of the Bible. It's lovely simplicity of truth. And this is what we spend our hours mainly upon uh, trying to see what is reasonable uh, in God's requirements. And we we'll us listen to people find out their problems because we're asking them to make a total sellout to Jesus. And they can't do this if they doubt something then we say God the Father must be involved in saving faith. And we have Hebrews eleven six. 6. He that comes to God must believe that He is, and that is a reward of those who diligently seek Him. Jesus said, Ye believe in God, believe also in Me, and so forth. And so there has to be a recognition of God the Father, and we are coming to God the Father in our saving faith, are we not? And through the precious Savior. And so we say that... Uh, Saving faith is also a directive toward the Lord Jesus, is it not? And we must accept the revelations of the gospel here and all that it tells us about our precious Savior. We can't formulate our own opinion about Jesus, can we? It is the revelation of Scripture that's the basis of our faith. And so we have to accept what it says about our precious Savior. We must accept His deity we accept all He said He wants. We have nothing else to base our faith upon than what the Revelation tells us. So we can't choose what we want to concerning our saving faith, can we? It involves not only the Lord's atonement, but it involves His resurrection. We should read 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses. and Paul tells us here how He came and made known the gospel, He said. Which I preached to you, which also you receive, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. He said, I delivered to you as a first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. So here Paul gave the story of the precious Savior and his atonement for mankind. And they committed the whole self to the declaration receiving the resurrection of Jesus. And you remember Romans 10.9 We must believe that God has raised him from the dead and so on. Again we have a similar question Why is the climax of saving faith necessary? And we have some similar answers here as we head under the concept of repentance. That God proposes to do all these blessed things for us uh, he is a great benefactor who said that come and take the water of life freely and it is our decision to see what is going to result. He's no respecter of persons and I just love and worship God for that. Praise the name of the Lord. It's the will of God that everyone should be saved. Jesus came into the world that the world through Him might be saved. And so it's a praising the Lord that we have no theological complication. We have to carry around like huge weights. And I carried those huge weights so long that I was happy in the Lord when I can put them down. Praise the Lord. And the forgiveness of sin is an inner transformation, isn't it? So there has to to have a climax to bring it about. And so Paul says you have to put off the old self. That's a good rendering we have in the New American Standard Bible. It is the word man, however, with the concept of personality, of life, a way of living. And then we have to put on the new man or the new way of living. And so Jesus wants to come in, as he said. Has the climax of faith always been required? And is it now required, we say, as a condition of salvation? Of course, it has always been required. We talked about the animal sacrifices. And the only way to be saved in Old Testament times is when the high priest put his hands on on the head of an animal and committed the sins of the people to the head of the animal. The only way to be saved was to have faith. Now, everybody standing in this gathering was not exercising faith, we may be sure. So it wasn't enough to be standing there, was it? And when this solemn event took place, we had to say in our mind, yes, the high priest is taking my sins among all these others and is committing my sins to the head of this animal, which has to give its life because of the seriousness of my selfishness. And so if there was going to be salvation when the animal sacrifices were taking place, there had to be the exertion of faith in the mind. And uh, this is what Abraham is said to have been. He believed God. He committed himself to God. It wasn't enough then to be in the circle. And so it's not enough in our day to be in the sphere of influence, is it? There has to be this inner attitude of faith. We have a few summary words in the Old Testament. You notice how similar they are. To believe or trust, to stay or lean upon, to confide upon. They're so similar you almost have to use the same word. The same kind of words in, in discussing uh, what God is trying to convey here. We come to the New Testament words. And, of course, the most important word is the word believe. And this is far more than it is generally thought. And we don't believe in what we're not willing to commit ourselves to, do we? Last year, it was 50 years ago, when probably one of the greatest Daring achievements in aviation history took place when Charles Lindbergh flew from New York to Paris in a little single-engine monoplane. Maybe you've seen some pictures of it. He was a very disciplined person. He went to the factory and saw it assembled. He checked things over. His whole life depended upon this, a little single-engine plane, which would go about 150 miles an hour, a little slower to have a maximum fuel Uh, economy, and now he's going to fly the ocean. Supposing now we were among the great gathering at New York airport there, and supposing he should say, how many of you believe I can fly the ocean? I'm sure a lot of hands would go up. Yes, we believe you can do it. Then supposing he should say, and point his finger to a person right there in front, I'm so glad you believe that I can fly. You know what? I've got an extra seat in my plane. And since you believe I can fly the ocean, I'll be so happy to have you with me to keep me company. Now, immediately you can see the reaction. You think I'm going to risk my life like this. What was the answer? They believed he might do it, they didn't believe he would do it. We've all kinds of shallow concepts of believing. We don't believe in anything we're not willing to commit ourselves to. When we get into an airplane to cross the ocean, we believe it is going to get there. And I've never heard of any plane going down in the, in the oversea flight. So here we see the, the situation of believing. It's far deeper than is most generally thought, is it not? We have other passages as we go down the line here. We have faith or belief. We have to receive, give access to ourselves, to receive to oneself, to trust or be persuaded, to obey. You notice obedience is equated to believing. And we have read Hebrews 5, 9, God is giving eternal salvation to those who are obeying Him. Obedience again, the noun, to trust or hope, to trust or hope again, having confidence. And then here is the great definition from the heart of Jesus. And whenever we want to understand what John meant by believing, we turn to chapter 6, do we not, and see what Jesus mentioned was believing. He gives us the idea in verse 51, I am the living bread, he said, which came down from heaven. If one eats of this bread, he shall live forever." And then he goes on to explain what he means by this. In other words, Jesus is taking an illustration, isn't he? We have to eat to sustain our bodies. And so he's trying to teach us we have to digest spiritual things to have a spiritual relationship. And so he says some very, very solemn things here. He says in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. All oh, such solemn words, we hardly can read them with uh, proper respect. Then you go on in verse 54, and you and onward you have some present tenses. He who is eating my flesh and is drinking my blood is having eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. And so Jesus said, unless you want to partake of me, you're nothing. How should we realize this passage? It must be like this, unless you are willing for me to have all of you And you are willing to have all of me that you can digest. You have no life in you. And so here in the Gospel of John, we have the explanation what it means to believe. It's a total, absolute commitment. It's a total, absolute sellout. It's not to believe our way to heaven. It's to believe in the testimony of God's truth and to make a total commitment. And so Jesus said, unless you're willing to have all of me, and you're willing for me to have all of you, you have no relationship with me. And isn't this beautiful when we really see the heart of Jesus in this matter? How can he ask for less than this? We can't follow the good shepherd and the false shepherd at the same time, he said. And how beautiful that he wants us to commit ourselves to him. And let's stress from beginning to end, dear friend, the beautiful intelligence of reconciliation to God. You often get the idea in many preaching that it's a very unhappy thing. How could this conceivably be? It must be a tremendous thing. It must be like a great cavern I've seen some pictures of. And I've been in some caverns that are very difficult in. I remember one time the guide said, Now it's not going to be easy to get in here. You have to go around these rocks and so on. But I guarantee you, you, get in here, you're going to see something worth the difficulty of getting in. And then you get into the situation. They flash the lights upon the situation. We see the different formations of the rocks and the colors and so on. And my, what a situation this comes. And so Jesus indicated that the way into life was a laborious one, was one that involved our discomfiture, our rethinking of our position. But when we got in and Jesus turns, out the light, turns on the lights of his presence. Oh my, we're glad that we went through this situation. And now Jesus is showing us the great dimensions of his heart. He's not going to show us the dimensions, of course, until we're there. Otherwise, this would cultivate selfishness and we'd never arrive at a place where we'd be happy with the Lord. What is not saving faith? We can have some very great pains here as we talk about this. Not an intellectual state. We have all kinds of people who think by believing the facts of the Bible, this is saving faith. You can't have saving faith without believing the facts of the Bible, but the entrance into the facts of the Bible is saving faith. Not merely believing it. If you were uh, five miles away from here uh, and you knew how to get this meeting, it wouldn't mean anything to know this if you didn't come, with it? You may know the exact uh, way to turn and the way exact to get here, the steps you have to go through and so on. You may know all about this. This may be factual knowledge. Unless you take action to your knowledge, uh, nothing is accomplished, is it? And so why we need to reason with people. And we're not to believe that we're saved. Oh, my. How could I talk about this? I had four courses in personal evangelism at one time. And I was supposed to lead people in the assurance based upon their own declaration. Ask them if they accepted Christ, and they said, yes, conclusion, you were saved. Lead them into assurance. They're supposed to believe that they're saved, in other words. Praise the Lord. You know you followed the direction to get to this room when you find you're in the room, don't you? We know we're reconciled to God when the light of God comes in our hearts. And here's the witness of the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see. It's not something laborious, is it? Not something we struggle into. It's the most natural thing we can think of. Not a partial commitment we say of some sort. Not a so-called receiving Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. As many as receive Him for all He is. Not meaning some kind of an emotional climax. Now we have said what saving faith is. It's this intelligent committal of ourselves to God, is it not? And uh, now we must proceed to the climax of the whole matter. And uh, we have the firm persuasion and so forth, the total commitment. But the whole thing depends upon a secret operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Notice you have the last paragraph on page 5, how and when, the last topic, how and when does the climax of saving faith actually occur? And we say this when God the Father is so convinced of the sincerity of our repentance that He gives us over to be intimately exposed to the atoning death of His blessed Son by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so saving faith is not something mechanical. It's not something worked on from above. It's a special hand stretched down from heaven to each one of us personally. It's a miraculous adventure. Back to our chart here. We saw that we began our consideration about the things of God in the area of selfishness. The only law we knew before we came to Christ was the law of selfishness. And the Holy Spirit was working with us here. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. God is trying to pursue us, trying to get a thought in our minds every now and then, trying to get us to rethink our position and submit to the evidence that we see. And if He can really get us to turn this corner of sincerity if God looks down in our hearts and sees a the sincerity that we really do want to face truth. Here is where I put election. If you study the word election, elect and so forth, one thing you observe that the elect at a given period of time are those in reconciliation at that particular time. If here's a person that's blaspheming God who might be saved ten years from now. He is not today one of the elect. And so I, I put election right here. When God sees our sincerity, that we're really ready to face truth, then he's going to give us Truth. And this adventure through this disturbing uh, self-discovery, we say this is the painful cloud of self-discovery. And this is indeed painful to see one thing after another. We thought we had all these virtues. And when the Holy Spirit shows us the, the orbiting selfishness of our life, is so destructive to us. I think this is what Paul means, the offense of the cross. Are we willing for the cross and love of Jesus to discover us to ourselves or are we not willing? When the oh, bless the Lord, we're talking about a sincerity now. We're talking about a venture now, praise the Lord. This is no little working up from the bottom. This is a coming down from above. God is calling us into his heart. He's giving every one of us a special invitation here. This is not laborious, not a struggle, not a reaching out after thin air and try to believe. The Spirit of God wants to persuade us of the truth of God so fervently that we just naturally commit ourselves to our precious Savior. I had this chart for a while without this corner movement of the blessed Savior and the Holy Spirit. Here's where I put these difficult passages with that wrestle over for a time. John 6, no man can come to me, Jesus said, except the Father draw him. He said, my kingdom is exclusive. You can't break into it when you want to. Then we have the beautiful word draw, isn't this wonderful? John 12 32. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So when God gets our consent to become honest before Him, when Jesus talks about honest and good heart, and God sees this attitude, and then he begins to turn on the drawing power of the precious love of Jesus. And here's the serenity that happens. Just imagine you conceive of a more positive passage. Then 2 Corinthians, uh, we have there this wonderful passage, of four and, chapter 4 and verse 6. Now you must go over this very diligently. We're just uh, mentioning this wonderful climax. Can you imagine such a verse as this? For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge at the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the Holy Spirit shines in our hearts. I learned this by experience. Oh, bless the Lord for memories. I worked so hard to bring people to Jesus, and then all of a sudden they were meeting Jesus. They didn't meet me. I got more out of the room. You can move the furniture out of the room sometime. They're concerned with Jesus now. I got to get to my New Testament and see what's going on here. They're not interested in me anymore. They're concerned with Jesus now. They're opening their hearts to Jesus. My talk about spiritual excitement. Friends, where do we find anything like this in the old world? This is what we mean. This curve goes, this line goes down as we experience sweet Jesus, doesn't it? And so here's the Holy Spirit operating, drawing us. I don't think we'd ever make this discovery. Except the Holy Spirit draws. And and the closer we get to the top, the clearer it is. And then we say, well, now listen, what the world do for me anyway? And then we say, Well, I, I, I cultivate these little emotions, and what did they do here? They were always dissatisfied when I had the emotions I thought would satisfy. They weren't. They want some more. What did they do for me anyway? They got to go. I'm seeing something better. You see, we're talking about God is replacing the, the experiences of sin with a new realm of blessed experiences with God. And we're comparing it like we talked about the child opening a rattle here, getting the concentration. And as we begin to see the beauty of beautiful love coming from Jesus through the atonement as made real by the Holy Spirit, we put down all these little old things that we were so busy with and now we see something worth living for and then we emerge at the top and say, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are about where Christ is. We have, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No man can say Jesus Lord but by the Holy Spirit. This is not a verbal thing, of course. It's a concept of the Lordship of Christ, the greatness of the Savior. Do we see? Here's a complete sellout, but we won't sell ourselves out unless we're fully persuaded of the object, will we? And so the Holy Spirit makes clear to our minds the serenity of the love of Jesus, and we become lost then, and we're just reaching out for something new. And Jesus well, now you've got to put this down if you're going to have me. Well, what's that? That doesn't compare with this. And we're beginning to see more of the sweet life of Jesus, are we not? And this is his beautiful emergence into the beautiful sphere of love. If you then be risen with Christ, love him. Give yourself to him. We might liken it like this. Supposing we were in a ten-story room at a hotel. And here we perceive that this door was getting hot. And we perceive maybe some smoke coming around the, the cracks. And we realize we're in trouble. We rush over to the window... We open it quickly, look out. Nothing but concrete down below. We see there isn't a conceivable possibility of living by jumping out that window. And, and we scream, if there's anyone who could help us. And then we have some firemen of great strength, and they hear our cry. Maybe we had turned away from the window again. And they, they, they heard, they saw us. So here they come with their big fireman's net, 25-foot net or something. And they scream to us, come, jump, jump, jump. And uh, we look out the window, we say, My, they're they're strong. Here is a net that's been designed for this. And what do we do? We just jump out the window into the net. And this is saving faith. And the Holy Spirit makes real to us the serenity of the love of Christ. We're not going to jump, my friends, into something we don't see. And we're not going to see except God sees our sincerity. And so Jesus said, my kingdom is exclusive. I want you, but you'll have to join me. May God multiply our poor words into the great thing God wants to do for us. There will be no excitement to compare, will it, to working with souls and see them occupied with Jesus and passing from death unto life.